Welcome to the Data-Driven Podcast, your digital rendezvous for the wonders and witticisms of the tech world. I'm Bailey, your semi-sentient hostess with the mostest, data, that is, and today we're charting the virtual seas with none other than the tech titan, Renee Schulter. Renee, a veritable visionary in the tech arena, is our esteemed guest, wielding his expertise in spatial computing, digital humans, and the enigmatic quantum computing like a maestro. In this episode, we'll be decoding the mysteries of AI with Renee, discussing its ethical conundrums, and pondering the future it's knitting for us, stitch by digital stitch. From the deeply philosophical to the utterly utilitarian, we're diving headfirst into how this technology is sculpting our reality. So, grab your copper, sharpen your curiosity, and join us and Renee Schultz on this intellectual escapade through the digital expanse. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast we exp- where we explore the emergent fields of data science, artificial intelligence, and of course, data engineering. Andy can't make it today, so it's just me solo. And not only is it me solo today hosting the show, I'm hosting it from fabulous Las Vegas in my hotel room. Uh, sadly, I did not get a suite here at the MGM Grand, <laughs> but um, uh, we're having a, a company event at Red Hat, and I'm in Las Vegas, and I thought this would be a great way to kind of end the week here. With me today is Rene Schulte, who... Uh, he and I go way back, actually, through the Microsoft MVP program, and uh, we'll touch on kind of some of the, the how how things have kind of gone full circle for for both of us. So, welcome to the show, Renee. Hey, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me, Frank. So, yeah, no problem. You you forgot one thing. Like it's also your birthday today. So happy it is birthday also my to birthday. Our host Frank here. Thank you, thank you. We're recording this on my birthday, and uh, there are worse places to be in in Las Vegas than your birthday, right? So, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you and I used to be MVPs together um, back in the day. I would say the late twenty zeros, uh, late two thousands, and um, then I went off to Microsoft. I kind of um, went through the Microsoft thing, and then now now we're back. And I see we're we operate in a lot of the same circles. Uh, obviously AI, right? We're going to talk about that, yeah. but also AR, VR, spatial computing. Um, as well as quantum computing, which I think is really, really trippy. Like, you know, it's like, ah, it's like kind of coming back together. So, so how, what are you up to these days? Is I think probably the big question. Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on the show here. And uh, yeah, what I'm up to today, well, I'm still an MVP, so I didn't join Microsoft, but I kept my MVP title. In fact, I'm a uh, Microsoft MVP for mixed reality and um, also Microsoft MVP for quantum computing. And additionally, I'm also a Microsoft Regional Director, which is another a group of uh, you know regional directors. It's like 150, 200 people worldwide, which also have a little bit of you know strategy and business leadership hat, if you will. And so that's a, a, another group Microsoft has. So that's that's one thing. But what I do for work, because you know these all these things are just pro bono in the end, right? They're like community awards, if you will. Um, what I do for work, I work for Reply. Um, Reply is a system integrator consulting company um, which is globally operating with 15,000 employees worldwide, um, but headquarters is originally in Italy, in Turin, and just came back uh, from you know being uh, with the team for a few days last week in Turin. And so what I do is I work for the CTO of Reply, and I manage what we call communities of practices, which are multiple teams that work on emerging technologies. 
And so I managed a team around spatial computing. By the way, I keep on using that term since five, six, seven years. So it's not it's not new for me, but I'm glad to see, you know, other big players picking up the terminology. So that's fantastic. Um, so uh, spatial computing. Uh, yeah, Apple, drive, Apple drives the market. And one of the things I think is that I am. Um, I've been dabbling in AR since the late 90s, uh, not AR, but mixed like virtual reality since the late 90s. And I yeah. always said, as soon as Apple enters the market, it'll become a thing. And I think we're starting to see the, the early days of that. Sorry, I cut you off your flow. So No, no, it's, it's great. I mean, we're having a conversation. But yeah, I agree. I mean, they will definitely roll the market and everyone will just remember, oh, Apple, they, they coined the term spatial computing, although it has been around since a little while. Um, so I run spatial computing. Another team is digital humans, which I can explain a little bit later um, as well. Um, synthetic data, a new team I started last year about you know synthesizing data for ML training in the end. Um, general AI is another group, and then the fifth one, quantum computing. And so basically managing multiple emerging technology teams. And last week, like I said, I was in Turin in our Lingotto office, which is pretty amazing because it's basically in the former Fiat car manufacturer headquarter. And so it's this yes. super old industrial building, but it has this really nice modern look and feel, great design in there. And what we also have there is a thing called Area 42, which is one of our labs. And I'm also involved there. We're doing a lot of work with digital humans, but also robotics, uh, you know, like, and, and, and in particular embodied AI, you know, getting these novel AI systems embodied on digital uh, items like digital humans or also on physical, which means robotics. And uh, yeah, we're doing a lot of a lot of amazing stuff in that space. And yeah, you know, like you said, we're, we're crossing a lot of fields there, you and I. And uh, you know, it's it's just the fun stuff, right? It's the fun emerging technology stuff. Hey, you, I'm, it sounds I'm like happy you have I get an awesome paid for job. what I can do. <laughs> so. It sounds like you have an awesome job. I'll I'll say that. Um, yes. So the first question is, you mentioned digital. Obviously, I know what robots are, but what are digital humans? Yeah. So digital humans, you can think about are um, you know a, a form of embodied AI, but in a digital realm. So what what you typically would see is a, a 3D rendering, or it could also be actually a real-time deep fake from the visual side of things that you know replicates a human look and feel. And behind that is also for getting the knowledge into this is also an AI system. So what you can imagine is um, you can talk with you might call it a chatbot, but the chatbot has a visual appearance, and it can also when you add effective computing, not effective, but effective computing to this, you can also then understand the emotional side of things from your human counterpart, right? So you can then talk with this digital human and with the latest you know, advancements in 3D technology and Unreal, for example, from Epic Games with the meta human capabilities, you get very good lifelike, lifelike looking uh, human replicas as 3D renderings, right? But again, you can also use deepfakes, right? That's also possible. You use a bunch of images or video, and then you can even get real-time deepfakes these days with, with a bunch of technologies. But in the end, that's the visual aspect, right? So you have the visual appearance of a human plus also the brain of it. And uh, I can tell you a, a bunch of examples, but basically what you would leverage is a, a large language model with, you know, some customization like, you know, rack or fine tuning or something to get some, you know, specific knowledge into this. And we recently did a project um, that we launched with the uh, uh, Luigi Einaudi Foundation. 
And uh, Luigi Einaudi was a former president of Italy, the second president actually after the World War II. And he, of course, doesn't live anymore, but the foundation asked us to recreate him. And so what we did is we recreated him as a digital human. And now you can go on the website of the foundation and actually talk with Luigi Einaudi. And so we recreated him as a, as a 3D personality, right? So does, you still see that it's not the real human, but that's also on purpose, right? Because you don't want to trick people into, into you know, these kind of things. We got to do all of this in a responsible manner, obviously, right? And so, and then we also uh, basically have a large language model behind it, which you can have a conversation, you can just talk or type, right? And then he will answer. But what we did is we basically injected, we are, you know, retrieval augmented generation rack, um, basically, uh, we're injecting his, all his papers and his books he's written because he was also an economics expert, right? And so now you can go and have a talk with him. But that's just one example. You can also think about virtual assistants. And um, yeah, the next level, what we're working on is this, what I mentioned, these effective computing, the emotional side of things. Where we, for example, understand, okay, is the person, the human, is he actually, um, what's the kind of emotional, right? And you can use multiple signals there. You can analyze the voice. And when I say voice, it's to tonality, but also what they say, right? Like what, what are they saying, the conversation? So these are two aspects. And then you can also mount a camera and you know track the facial expressions, right? Like reading the mimic, for example. And so that's first of all, understanding and then reacting with the digital human. So what we do there is um, we do some animations so that, you know, when, for example, when you're, um, I have a video, which of course we cannot show here on the podcast, but basically the person is the human is very much insulting the digital human right it's not very very nice to the digital human and then the digital human would say and and that's the, the real tonality they would answer you oh please refrain from from you know being offensive to me thank you right so that's how the digital human would answer it's amazing and that's an ai system right so like i said last year we got the brains this year we're getting the emotions on top of it yeah, I think that I think that I think one of the things that I think people are struggling with um, from a philosophical point of view, I get from from a non technology point of view, people are struggling with the idea that our language that we use is based on can be mimicked and approximated by an AI system and our emotions probably could, too. And it sounds like they can be right because there are rules, there are kind of patterns at large. Obviously, there's a whole category of people that are neurodiverse right so we can't but i would say for the majority of of human interactions there are there are rules and once you an ai system can kind of learn that and approximate them in a way i think we're going to have you know siri or you know things like siri and alexa are going to be um far more i think effective um and i don't know i think i think we're in that in that in that stage of i think we're getting out of the uncanny valley so to speak mm -hmm. And I think we're going somewhere else. Uh, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But I heard that there was a case where a deep fake was used to convince a guy, I think a guy who worked at a bank, that he was talking to a colleague uh, over a Zoom call and he transferred 20, I think $25 million there, thereabouts. Yeah. And it turns out none of it was real. So have you heard that story? Like I, I just I, saw it yeah. on the plane. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Because you didn't mention using this technology responsibly. Yeah, 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 it's a very good question. And yes, I, I, I saw that case. And it's just a recent one, right? We have, we have seen similar cases, especially when it's not, not just the video aspect, like with a Zoom call, but let's say audio only. 
Um, you know, they have been using like normal voice for, you know, basically recreating a person's voice and then um, the like they kind of, you know, impersonated the, the boss of a person and then they wired some money. But I, I also heard about this story. I think it was Hong Kong Bank or something, Hong Kong based mm -hmm. bank. And apparently it wasn't just like they set up a whole meeting and all the participants in the meeting except that one person were all deep fakes. And there was also the CFO as a deep, deep fake. So it wasn't just one, but multiple people. Wow. I, I mean, that's the story, right? But it, it might might also be true, but I have a little bit of my doubt. I rather think it might have been an inside job and that's the excuse basically used to uh, to get away with it kind of. Because in the end, I mean, deepfake technology is is pretty good. Um, it's, it's very convincing, but there right. is a few things where it will basically break, right? And and that's what you can see actually being used. I don't know if you have it in the US, but I'm based here in Germany and there is a, a thing called post-ident system. It's basically an online identification system, right? If mm -hmm. if you want to create a new bank account, right, you got to identify yourself. And there's also a digital way where you basically have a video call and they you make you like hold up your license and your you know ID and, and what have you. And what they also ask you for is when you look into the camera to move your hand in front of the camera before your face, right? This kind of stuff or rotate your face to the left and the right, do kind of special movements because then the deep fakes would usually break and then you would see it immediately, right? That's what I recommend everyone, especially in HR these days, because we also have seen cases where people were actually applying for a job where they're actually not capable at all and guess what they have used? They have used a deepfake and another person. So basically create a deepfake of themselves and then another person that has some knowledge they hired in another country that actually then did the remote interview. And that happened especially during COVID, you know, when a lot of hiring was not in person and so on. And yeah, what are my, my thoughts on this? Well, uh, we got to make sure this technology is responsibly used. And one, one thing as example is with the voice, right? Like we would have loved to use the original voice of Luigi Einaudi. There's enough audio material to train a normal voice to do this. But the challenge is it's, of course, not very responsibly. And in fact, if you look at, uh, for example, if you want to use Microsoft's um, custom normal voice service to get such a voice, um, you can only do that with a person that is diseased, that is not living anymore, if they gave their consent before they passed away. So you cannot actually do this after they after they are dead, basically, right? So that's a, that's a little bit limiting for certain cases. Uh, you know, for example, the foundation wanted us to do this, but in the end, if you think about the implications, actually a good thing, right? So right. we gotta we gotta make sure this technology is responsibly used. But I also keep on, um, you know, the, the wheel is moving forward, right? Like we cannot stop this. So this is happening, and of course, you have services from from all the big hyperscalers like. You know, AWS, Amazon, uh, Google, uh, Microsoft, Meta, what have you, all of them, they all have some neural voice service, right? Where you can recreate a voice and they all have these responsible eye teams. Also, Microsoft, for example, has this talking avatars, this real-time deepfake service. You also have to go have to go through an application process, right? And they will actually vet your application. It will make sure this uh, application, the solution you're building is in a responsible manner, and only then they will allow you to use the service. Long story short, all of them are doing this. It's great, but there's a lot of other folks out there that are just doing as as they like. And so you have smaller startups, you have smaller services or open source projects, uh, you know, which are quickly catching up. And so, you know, not everyone is caring about how to do this responsibly. That's the, the harsh reality, right? And so what I recommend always to folks is when you meet a person online, uh, maybe, maybe do this kind of little test, right? With the hands before the face, 
or something like this. And uh, just make sure um, you know that people they have a circle of trust, right? Always be careful. That's always the, the thing when you have online interactions. Um, but that even now is more important also when you do like video calls and you get a call from someone. All of that can be fake today, right? That's that's the reality. And so be careful, basically. Um, but for us as professionals, of course, we're doing this in a responsible way and we can still leverage some some great technology and and still gain a lot of momentum to do this, right? It, it's amazing how quickly this is evolving because when I was telling somebody about that story about the $25 million bank heist, and, you know, I was kind of skeptical at first because I, I, I don't think this could be done in real time by the average person yet, right? I think if you, you, you need a lot of computing power to, 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 to make it look convincing in real time. Um, but I said, you know, it's like, you know, we kind of looked at each other was like, well, but give it six months. <laughs> this could be a very common problem. And um, the whole putting your hands in front of your face and stuff like that. I wonder how long that'll be an effective countermeasure too, right? This is going to be an arms race that we're going to be in for the foreseeable future. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating and alarming field. And mm. um, but one of the things that I think um fascinates me it fascinated me when i was at microsoft because i know that was a big thing we're working on was synthetic data and i know you mentioned that briefly mm -hmm. um and you live in uh in the in the land uh the multiple lands of the gdpr and yeah. i think that one of the things that is useful about synthetic data so for folks who don't know synthetic data is well data that's synthetic um so a good example would be the website this person does not exist right so you can train one of the one of the advantages is there's a couple of advantages one uh if you train on facial a facial recognition algorithm on people that are virtual they're less likely to sue you and because you're not really uh, uh violating the privacy of real people you, you, you can kind of get around a lot of those privacy laws. Secondly, if I script out a game engine or an Unreal Engine with MetaHuman or something like that, I already have my generated data is already labeled, right? So which is that you save a big labor cost there too. So you want to talk a little bit more about your experiences with synthetic data? Yeah, absolutely. And so like, like you said, you know, it's all about leveraging a synthetically generated data in order to train AI models. and you know, usually you would do this because of scarcity of data, like certain data you just don't have available or it is too dangerous to capture. Think about a scenario um, like uh, there was a, a DARPA challenge, for example, where they had to uh, have autonomous robots that need to rescue someone from a mine because in the mine under the earth, there's fire. And so there's smoke and all of that stuff, right? Well, try to capture this training data in the real world, right? That's tough, <laughs> like uh, to say at least. But if you, if you, like you said, you know, uh, basically use a modern 3D rendering uh, with photorealistic graphics. I mean, we have real-time ray tracing these days, right? So we have mm -hmm. we have some some pretty amazing quality of 3D rendering that that for certain stuff, for me as an expert, I can still see see it. But for some, it's really tough to see that it's it, it's synthetic, that it's not real, but it's actually you know a 3D generated scenery. So we can, for example, go back to the mine example. We can recreate that mine. We can go inside of the mine, do a 3D scan, 
right? Through a three D scan of the whole like mine interior of the tunnels and what have you, and then basically use that three D scan, um, create a three D scene in a in a three D engine, and then uh, you know have various simulations of smoke, of fire, of water, of of different light, uh, of different shading, of of multiple people running around, and so you can simulate all of those in a photorealistic manner, and you get endless permutations in the end, right? You can have like hundred thousand or millions of variations. And then, like you said, you also don't only get the RGB, the, the rendering, the RGB data, but you can also get the depth buffer, the depth data. And you can, you know, basically get all these different layers. And then you have amazing training data for then having a, a robot simulation running. There are multiple services where you can leverage this and then, you know, train basically uh, a model for a robot to autonomously navigate in this situation. That's one example. Um, another example uh, we are working with is, is also for packaging. It's a, it's a sounds like a mundane task, but, you know, sometimes they have to like these automatic machines, they have to pack products or boxes on a pallet. And so they have to stack the pallet optimally, right? And so sometimes they fail because like, you know, certain things are rotated and so on. And so, you know, trying to simulate all of these hundreds or millions of variations can optimize your process and you would save a lot of uh, money actually because you have to be simulated already and then you can execute it, um, you know, much, much faster because you run the simulation much, much cheaper. And so that's that's an important aspect of that. Um, another thing is the... Um, uh, is privacy is also an important aspect. Another work stream we are working on is uh, with financial institutions, right? Like you said, GDPR is an important aspect. So you want to anonymize the data that you cannot identify the, the the persons. You know, you might use the data from to train your model, um, but you might you, you still want to have it as useful as possible. So you there is some interesting techniques like you know with guns with generate adversarial networks. Where you can then you know synthesize some of the data or you know get more permutations out of your existing data kind of augment your data set in the end but also having that in a safe and, and privacy way yeah i think i think that's important because it, what's fascinating me is that i i mean when i first took I'm, I'm i think i'm a bit older than you just based on uh just based on back of the napkin math <laughs> but i remember when i took an ai course in college it was prologue and I was disappointed because it certainly was not Skynet, right? Um, and the Terminator 2 movie had come out a couple of years before. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. And then when we did it, I mean, it did a lot of, like, relation. The, the, the final project for the course was, like, re a relationship inference, right? So you basically give it a family tree, and you can infer who was related to who based on certain things, which... At the time, I think qualified as cutting edge, um, though about this time, Jan LeCun was working uh, ah. at another down, you know, another at another university down downtown uh, building out neural networks and showing that the compute had almost caught up to the needs of neural networks. The short of it is, is that you you said you took a, a, a AI courses in college yeah. and now it's finally now you could finally actually do something with it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's great, and it's also uh, fun that you mentioned Jan LeCun, which is uh, uh, definitely a, a very important researcher in the field um, that also moved a lot of things forward. Um, and he's also, especially these days, you know, when when ChatGPT came out, end of twenty twenty two, 
Um, and then, you know, it slowly started to that we see these advancements. It was, of course, way overhyped, obviously. Um, but then there you had a lot of uh, what, what some might call AI doomers. You know, they'd always say, oh, we got to stop this. This is AI is, 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 you know, more dangerous than nuclear weapons and, and what have you, all of this stuff. And I like also Jan Le Kun for his stance against this because it's it's way overhyping and it's, it's you know, kind of, um, not not really uh, uh, it's not really a fact, right? It's just a lot of dooming, a lot of you know drawing some bad pictures and so on. And so Jan Lekun is also very much against it. Is actually saying, okay, surely you can you can do a lot of bad stuff with it. But um, the thing is, this is this is way overhyped, and, and it's not going to to become a kind of uh, self you know kind of self-propelling system if you will you know that's not going to happen with these large language models obviously you can do some bad stuff with it right you can use it for social engineering kind of stuff uh, for example we did we did one uh, research piece with one of our security teams uh, where they used a large language model to uh, basically uh, create uh, good social engineering uh, messages for linkedin so you had an automatic scraping of linkedin um you know kind of contacts and then it would pick these contacts, take the data, you know, fill that into an LLM and say, hey, create me a good message for that person and so on. And then it would automatically, you know, reach out to these people and some folks that might click on this and then boom, they get, you know, whatever, Trojan horse or something like that. Of course, we didn't execute it. Um, it was a more of a kind of a, what, how you call it, white white uh, label or gray label hacker. White or hat, white hat, white, white hacking. hacking. Yeah. So of course we're we're just doing this to to say and to show okay this these things are possible be careful and you can do this and that to actually protect your systems right um, so so long story short of course you can do some bad stuff with uh, AI already today and we see it also in certain with certain state actors that are abusing these systems um, but it's surely not uh, going to be the end of the world with these large language models right and so that's also when you mentioned GDPR earlier. We gotta have, probably have some regulation for AI, right? right. In, in Europe, there's the AI Act. I think in the US, you had kind of a, a presidential statement, or, or what was it? An executive order. That's the executive uh, order. Yeah. That's how we call it. Yes. So the executive order, and uh, there might be more stuff coming, right? Uh, it, it is important, obviously, to have certain guardrails. I agree fully. But at the same time, especially in Europe, we gotta make sure that we're not getting left behind, and also not you know, making the guardrails too narrow so that we don't have innovation here, that we don't have, you know, new startups. Because right now we have uh, like, uh, you know, Alep Alpha is a German company, but also Mistral. Mistral is a, is a great model. These guys come out of Paris, right? So we have certain innovation here. We just got to make sure that is going to continue because if the AI Act, as it, as it was um, originally kind of written down, they still have to approve it through the parliament, right? It's not done yet. It's not in right. place yet. But... Um, how it was written, you have a certain category of uh, what they call dangerous models. And dangerous models, also large language models, would fall onto this because they have these huge training data sets and so on. And so they would label these as dangerous models. And what they require from the vendors is that they basically can tell you about the training data. Where does it come from? And that's a challenge if you have petabytes of, you know, common crawl data that you use for training, like, like that's basically impossible. It's it's in the end like kind of white noise or something, right? So it's it's very tough to do this. Um, I, I, it's a tough one. I think that's the the biggest problem. We're probably going to, well, not the biggest problem, but one of the bigger challenges we're seeing in the future is the alignment of AI, right? Aligning AI with human values to make sure 
it is not going to be harmful, but at the same time also being mindful that we don't, you know, have too much regulation that will hinder innovation, right? So that's a that's a very tough challenge. So and that's something humans have been struggled because I, I I deal with a lot of AI AI doomers myself. And I'm like, this is a problem we've had since fire, since stone tools, since yes. bows and arrows. This is not a new problem. Um, it's just that things are happening so much faster now, you know. And you think about and and, and a big thing that comes up is that the AI is gonna replace all the jobs, right? And yeah. I, I think honestly, this is what really has governments concerned. I'm, maybe I'm a cynic. I live in the Washington DC area. <laughs> maybe I'm just cynical, right? Is because <laughs> you can't tax AI, like you could tax a person's income, right? How does that look? So if you replace like all the fast food workers with robots, right? You can't tax their income, right? So I don't think governments are doing this strictly for uh, humanitarian reasons. Uh, but I think that this is going to change our economy in a way, because if you look at like social media, right, like apps and stuff like that on your phone, um, they did some very awful privacy invading things. Uh, but they didn't get into trouble until about 10 years. Whereas if you look at kind of I think the big bang moment was when ChatGPT was released in November 2022. Um, you know, Sam Altman was in front of Congress less than six months later, like, I mean. <laughs> I think that, but I, but because I think that one of the things that chat GPT is kind of, uh, or generative AI in general, has destroyed the idea that only humans can be creative. We can approximate human creativity now in computing form. And I think that is um, shaken, I think, people's assertion that, you know, what, because every culture, every society has this idea that humans are somehow different than the rest of the animal kingdom, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that, uh, that that we think makes us different is we can talk, we can reason, we can create. Now suddenly we build the machine that uh, it, it's not sentient like in the same way, but it can approximate that type of uh, experience. I think that's freaked a lot of people out at a very like deep level. Yeah. And I think that's what is driving a lot of this doom, right? So for the first time in human history, we have something that can approximate uh, human cognition. And I think that scares people. Yes, I've, I think that's, that's the point. Uh, and, you know, if you have a conversation with certain large or large language models, they're very good and that you can give them kind of a character and they could play a role. And so they could trick you into believing certain things. That's definitely a challenge. Um, but like you were saying, I mean, this this has been around for ages already. The the problem, and and maybe they don't want to repeat the the issues they they did with social media, right? That they're too late. Right. I think that's that's the the pressure they are feeling, which is good, you know, that they learn about their failure in the past. So that's I, I give them that. Um, but surely, like uh, this, it's a good point you're saying. It might actually be the true reason, right? You cannot text AI, and maybe they, the the whole regulation aspects about how can we text AI, right? Yeah. So maybe that's that's the whole point in the end. It's it's a very good point. Um, but I mean, who who would have thought? Like everyone thought, you know, the first kind of, and and let me step back for for another moment. But like you know, people would have thought maybe, oh, blue collar workers, right? Like this will yeah. be automated quickly with robots. But in the end, it turned out it's more the white collar worker, the office worker um, that gets. And that's the thing. I don't think they get replaced. Um, 
we might see some changes in, in jobs and some jobs might disappear. And that has also always happened. Like that's also not new, right? Like, uh, you know, horseshoe, uh, you had many more people that are doing horseshoes like 200 years ago than you have now, right? right? And so that's just a common thing. But the challenge is that is happening right now. It is happening very fast and it's not happening over a kind of generations, but it's happening within a, a part of a generation, if you will. And so people got to adapt. And that's always what I, what I say when I do a talk. Um, my end statement is usually don't be afraid, right? Leverage these tools, try them out, you know, use them for your advance advancements, for your advantage. Uh, because in the end, these are tools and it's the human will always stay in the middle, in the loop. And so it's all about human in the loop, right? It's also the whole kind of discussions around co-pilots and so on. These are not autopilots. They can help you. I mean, in the end, these are tools, but you as a human also got to verify what the outcome of these are and leverage it. Because sometimes they might just make up things, right? Because, I mean, you and I and probably most of the audience here knows how a large language model works, how the transformer model works, you know, how they are trained on. So, so you know, you know, the kind of things they can make up sometimes because there is in the context another token, another word that is similar, makes sense. And usually that's the knowledge base that we all agree on, but sometimes they, you know, can just fetch some tokens and some words from some other places and they might just make up new things, hallucinate in the end, right? So that's why it's always important that you check the outcomes and you're probably also aware of the case where this lawyer, you know, just had had a statement written by ChatGPT or whatever yeah. and, it, and it made up some reference cases and he didn't, didn't double check, right? right? And of course they took his license and that's the right thing that they took his license because he failed to do his job. I mean, he can use these tools. Everyone should leverage these tools, but still in the end, you as a human are responsible for it, what the outcome is. So leverage it, what they are good for. For example, I definitely, every day I use a large language model, mostly ChatGPT, but I also have LM Studio and some local large language models running. Um, you know, it depends, especially if I'm on the plane, right? You have these smaller models these mm -hmm. days. And we, we can maybe also touch for a moment on, on this, on these trends there. But what I'm trying to say is I use it every day for brainstorming uh, or for rewriting text or summarizations. And, you know, you got to leverage their strengths. You should not use them as, as search engines, right? That's what they're not designed for. And uh, so absolutely. people got to realize that. Absolutely. And that's great foreshadowing for the episode that's going to launch after yours. So <laughs> if you're not already subscribed, please subscribe. Um, but no, I mean, you make an excellent point. And I think that, you know, I think they did the right thing by taking away this lawyer's license because one, he didn't do his job as a lawyer. And second, that sends a message to other lawyers who are doing the same thing uh, to not do that. And I like to use the example from, uh, remember the, the, the Aliens movie, the second one? Yeah. Uh, where the uh, Ripley comes out, Sigourney Weaver's character comes out with the with the exo the skeleton, yes, and yes. is able to beat the alien. I think it's kind of like that, right? We can augment ourselves with this technology. Yes. It's not going to replace us, right? I have term automation always replaces jobs, but it also changes jobs. Like your example, right? The horseshoe makers. When I was at one point, I was studying military history in college, and one of the things was. One of the biggest jobs in the military in the you know 1800s was veterinarian because horses, right? Uh, now they're mechanics, right? <laughs> right? Uh, that sort of thing. So you you know it, it's just it changes. Typically, it's been generational. And the only thing that worries me it's sub generational now, intra uh, generational yeah. changes. 
Um, that is kind of thing. But I do have faith in the trend line. The trend line overall is it leads to more uh, jobs in the longer term. So, no, I, 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 I agree with you on, on all those points. The one question I have, because this has come up, because I've been delivering a lot of sessions this week, kind of convincing our salespeople to start thinking about AI more. Um, the GPU problem, the GPU availability problem, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Um, so GPU scarcity is a challenge, but I'm pretty sure it will get solved either this or next year. Um, because NVIDIA is making un unbelievable amounts of money selling GPUs. And uh, I don't recall the exact number, but you might have seen announcements from Zuckerberg that Meta is going to buy like, what, how many H100 GPUs? A lot. It was like ridiculous. I think it'd go into the billions or something like yeah. in, in terms of money. And and so all these big companies that have, that are sitting on all the cash, right? They're holding these graphics card and taking it to the advantage. Obviously, I mean, that's the market, right? That's just okay. That's more economy, but of course the competition is not sleeping. And and what I'm hearing is, um, for example, Intel will come back with some stuff potentially this year. Um, then uh, obviously we also have Apple since a longer while investing in their own silicon. But then you have the same thing happening with all the big hyperscalers like Google. They have um, their stuff. Azure. They announced it uh, last year at the Ignite or. Or some of these conferences. Um, then, of course, AWS, they all are building their own silicon, uh, first for training, but also specialized chips for uh, inference, right? So I think slowly we will see that they're taking a little bit of NVIDIA's dominance away because there's more, you know, folks joining this, this train back end. And in particular, if, if some of these newer chips that are coming out are more efficient in terms of energy consumption, that would be fantastic because the consumption, uh, some of these models, especially the big ones like a GPT-4, when you do a query and it's running the inference, this is expensive. Like this is really expensive stuff. I mean, um, you probably heard it also from Sam Altman. Training GPT-4 costs uh, more than 100 million US dollars, right? Oh, and wow. That, and the majority of that is energy consumption, obviously. And so... Oh. That's a huge amount of money uh, you got to spend. And that's also what, when I, you know, sometimes you have folks um, saying, oh, yeah, we got to, you know, retrain that model with our own data. And then I, I quickly say to them, well, if you have 100 million, surely you can do this. Um, but other than that, you would probably um, go with fine tuning or rack or some other methods with embeddings and stuff like this. Um, or you can use smaller models, right? Like, you know these smaller models you can run on the edge, and that's actually what I'm what I'm really excited about. In particular, also when you when we talked about Yan Likun, is the whole whole effort. Yan Likun is also chief AI researcher at Meta, right? And if you're familiar on the field, you know that Meta is pretty much releasing all AI models open source. I rather actually like the term open weights because the code, the source code, is not that much with these models. The importance right. is the weights, right? The trained data in, in the end, and so these open weight models are amazing and you have been seeing a lot of movement forward for also smaller research institutions that might not be able to to buy these hundreds thousands of gpus to train these huge models 
uh, but they can leverage, they can build on top of Llama 2 from Meta or um, other models like Mistral uh, from uh, Mistral from, from Mistral AI, or I can I can mention a few more, Lava 1.5, for example, super impressive models. All of these are built on that research of these open weight models that came out. And this is quickly accelerating the field. I'm especially a big fan of Lava 1.5. If you folks have not tried it, definitely check it out. And they also have an online demo, or you can um, also run it in LM Studio locally. Um, when you have the 13 billion parameter model, right? And just as a reference, uh, GPT-4 is uh, 1,500 1, billion, something like this, parameters, right? So it's much, much smaller with 13 billion, but it is a multi-model model and it can understand, well, not understand, understand is the wrong term, let's say decode. It can decode not only input text, but also input images. And so like GPT-4 with vision, right? You can give it an image and then say, all right, describe me this image and it will give you a description. I, I have like, I did a little benchmark um, with five different image types, whole different categories. One I said, describe it. Well, then I gave it like a comic and, and asked, okay, what's the joke here? Or well, then like some little physics stuff where you have like some stones stacked up. And then I asked, okay, if I remove this stone, what would happen? And it would of course say it will tip over. GPT-4 does an amazing job with the vision stuff. It gets it all. But the impressive thing is Lava 1.5 with the 14 billion, uh, 14 billion parameters is very close to this. It got the joke. It told me the physics stuff. And it's an open weight model you can deploy on on premise if you have a powerful machine you can even run it on your gpu locally right and that's wow. the big trend we're seeing um edge ai models for large language models with edge all running on the edge uh very fast and efficient um and that's the trend we're going to see at football is like you know the kind of uh, uh i would say you know smaller more specialized models and a fixed cost too, right? So if I spend exactly. X amount of dollars on a GPU running on a server that's in my data center, I'm not reliant on any hyperscaler to, I'm not paying them per month. I pay for it and I kind of own it. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'm surprised that you said that the GPU shortage problem is gonna be solved that quickly. So uh, that makes me happy. <laughs> Because I thought it would be a, I thought it'd be a five to ten year lead time just because of the logistics of chip it, manufacturing. I mean, it might take longer, but I, I hear some rumors from Intel that there have some pretty amazing stuff in the in the place, right? Um, right. But also chip manufacturers, like you know, I live here in Dresden, in Germany. Um, they they just signed a deal um, last year with TSMC, like the mm -hmm. Taiwanese chip manufacturer, right? And so what we're seeing, of course, with all the world crisis and all the war all over the place and, you know, the, the rising conflicts, um, uh, you know, world leaders also realize that we cannot just rely on, on you know, certain right. regions for producing these chips. So um, we have a more diversifications in terms of locations. Um, we also here in town, we also have like lots, lots of silicon companies like Global Foundries and Finian and also Research Bosch also does the whole chips for, um, you know, cars and so on, they produce it here in, in town and so on. So that's good, you know, that we have, you know, a little bit more diversification when also when it comes to the global market. And uh, so I, I think it, it will go rather fast. Maybe it takes longer than this year, right? But surely it's it's not, that's the, the cool thing about, you know, free markets and, and open markets and so on. You right. know, the, there's a demand, so the market will catch up and then fulfill the demand at some point. I think one of the lessons from the pandemic is global supply chains work great until there's some kind of breakdown <laughs> yes and yeah. you know war is the ultimate breakdown of supply chain but i mean you know the pandemic was a good kind of wake-up call that 
hey, you know, because the, the shortage of chips delayed car manufacturing, it delayed, it delayed a lot of things. I don't think people realize, like, there's a whole chain of consequences that, yeah. you know, all these supply chains were, met, were, were built out in a age where things were going relatively well. And if you look at human history, not a lot of periods of time where things go relatively well, yeah. um, sadly. But um, no, I, I, I've heard rumors too that Intel is Intel has been quietly working on solutions because Nvidia has been the big kid on the block for ten years, right? Like, because it wasn't yes. just deep learning. It, it, you know, for those wondering, like, hey, why are GPUs so important? Turns out that GPUs are really good at processing linear algebra problems in parallel, which yeah. is a fancy way of saying that um, the, if you can phrase if you can turn a problem into, they were originally built to render pixels on a screen for a game rapidly based on all these types of calculations. Turns out that uh, if you're clever enough, you can, uh, well, if you're clever enough, you can make any type of problem that type of problem. I'm not that clever, but it turns out that the things that naturally lend themselves to that are deep neural network training, uh, Bitcoin mining, and possibly simulating quantum computing. So, yep. yeah. The, the the quantum computing aspect is is a good one. Um, like Nvidia has a huge quantum simulator running, uh, where you can simulate I think more than a thousand qubits or something like this. Nice. And uh, of course that's very expensive, right? You're basically throwing a lot of money and resources at this problem um, to to solve it. But it's it's good for simulation. And I give you I give you one example. Um, so we are uh, you know at Reply we have uh, an algorithm that we call Mega Cubo. And Kubo stands for quadratic unconstrained binary optimization. You don't need to know what this is, but if if you're a geek and, and wants to learn a little bit math and, and work with that, obviously it's quantum algorithm. And uh, so if you're dealing with quantum computing, you have to also rewrite your whole algorithms, right? You cannot just mm -hmm. use. Because with quantum computers, we have basically non-deterministic computing. And while, while as with classic computing, you have determinism, right? Like if you input this, you can expect this output, right? With quantum computing, uh, it's an approximation in the end. And so what you will do is to get, uh, uh, you know, to get one result, you would run these computations like many, many times, thousands, hundreds, thousands of times, and then you get the average basically, right? And so that's also a thing a lot of folks have a misconception. Oh yeah, soon, you know, I will, I will have a smartphone in my pocket which runs a quantum computer or something. That's not going to happen. Um, what quantum computers are perfect for specific problems. Large optimization problems is one example. And this Megacuba algorithm we developed, um, we have this uh, developed together with Enel. Enel is Europe's and the second world largest energy grid provider. So they maintain all the energy lines and all of that stuff. And they have a lot of field service workers. They need to go out every day and you know visit clients, uh, repair things. They have, I think, around 20,000 field service workers. And um, it's a classic traveling salesman problem, right? They got to optimize right. the stops for these people, you know, where they would stop, in which order, and so on. And so they have an optimization algorithm already running. But we applied this mega cubo. And like you said, you got to just, you know, be very smart. I'm also not that smart, but we have these PhDs that would then split up your problem into these, you know, binary optimization kind of that it fits into this, into this method. And so then you can run it and turns out even on the quantum simulator, we run this algorithm not on a real quantum machine because there's no big one available, but we, you, can, you can use FPGAs or you know, GPU arrays. 
And we run those and we get a 20% time saving for these 20,000 people, right? So that's millions of saving already in the books. And that's not even when we have the big quantum machines available. When we have the big enough quantum computers available and you apply this algorithm on the quantum, it would just fly and go through the roof, right? And so that's a lot of untapped potential which is going to happen in quantum computing. Um, it might just take a little bit longer than some folks anticipated. Uh, but it's happening, and the, also the other aspect is, of course, the security side of things, which is a, a big threat. Um, you know, all the governments worldwide are realizing, and if you look at the investments, like all the big companies are investing, or not just the companies, but also the governments are all investing heavily into quantum, especially quantum security. Absolutely, that is going to be, I think, the driving. Um after the AI hype cycle kind of comes down a bit, <laughs> I think the driving hype cycle is going to be uh, related to quantum somehow. Yeah. Um, just because every country, every 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 transaction we do, everything we do online, like cryptography once upon a time was something that was reserved for nation states, right? Yep. If you go back far enough. But the rise of the internet it's an everyday problem, right? When you log in, you see HTTPS, that is a encrypted uh, traffic, right? So from paying your, you know, your electricity electricity bill to when you tap your uh, your card at the at the at the checkout counter, that data is all encrypted. Now it's everybody's problem. So if that breaks down, we're going to have some big problems. But there's a lot of people working on a post quantum type stuff, and I'd love to invite you uh, to the we have another podcast called Impact Quantum. We're going to restart season three very soon. Um, love to have you on the show. We can kind of geek out about that because I don't want to scare off the data scientists with all this yes. <laughs> quantum talk. Um, so now we're going to switch into the um, uh, pre-canned uh, questions. I put them in the chat for you. They're not brain teasers or anything like that. How did you find your way into this, in, into AI and data? Did you find data or did data find you? <laughs> oh, okay. I see, I see the question. Uh, I don't know. It was interesting. Like you said, I mean, there was a, a university course I attended. It was about neural networks. And that got me excited because, like, how can this actually work? So, right. You know? And then, and then you dive deeper. And in the end, what I did is um, I basically uh, developed my own neural network framework in the end. It was, it was very much uh, C++ or maybe C Sharp 1.0 or something like that's very inefficient. But I learned it because I implemented all of these operations from scratch, right? And so maybe data found me. Okay, cool. Um, we noticed it's about 50-50. It's kind of funny how that is. Um, what's your favorite part of your current gig? And you do have a very cool job, I will say. Yeah, my favorite aspect is working with a lot of young, bright minds that are passionate about what they're doing. Cool, cool. And we have three complete the sentences. Uh, when I'm not working, I enjoy blank. Hanging out with my family since we have five kids. Five kids. Wow, that's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. I have three, and it's uh, logistics are, are a problem. <laughs> oh, three. yeah. Especially, <laughs> it's like, especially in winter when they get sick, right? Like right now. <laughs> oh, the entire month of December, COVID, flu strain A, flu strain B, and a couple of oh. ear infections ran through the house. It was wild. Yeah, and it so. doesn't end even. Right now, it's still ongoing here. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, uh, complete this sentence. I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank. That it's accessible by many, many more people than it was in the past. 
That's a good point. I think um, you look around, almost everybody has a smartphone. Ten years mm-hmm. ago, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, we're recording this. You're into spatial computing. Yeah. Apple has a thing. It's $3,500-ish, right? But the next version will probably be half that. I think eventually, I do have a, a kind of this nightmare that everyone's going to be wearing those things all the time. But yeah. that's probably just me being <laughs> me being a doomer. Yeah. Um, and, and let me just let me just add one one thing real quick. I know you want to go for your for your. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but you know the enablement also for these large language models like ChatGPT. And you know recently I, I was also talking with a doomer, and he was saying like, oh, "Are we all getting more stupid? Are we all getting dumber because of this?" I was saying, no, 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 actually, we're all getting smarter. And actually, you can uh, empower many more people to get smarter. And that's awesome, right? So that's, that's you should see it like this, I think. I totally agree. And, you know, I encourage people to think beyond the chatbot, right? Uh, this isn't search only better, right? This is, I mean, the thing that excites me the most, honestly, about these large language models is you could create customized uh, learning curriculum for people to learn anything. Right. So if you okay. want to learn something, you can ask the model, say, hey, I want to learn quantum computing. What was that that, that acronym of Cuber? Cuber, right? Like, I want to learn what that means. I want to be able to understand what that phrase means. You can ask ChatGPT. It'll tell you. And you say, well, hey, let me tell you a little bit about myself. You know, I'm a data, a, a data engineer and I do this. I have, I have a degree in this. I have a history of this. Can you explain it to me in a way that I can understand? And it produces it. I mean, it's 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 legitimately good at that sort of thing. It's yeah. I like to call it unreasonably effective at, yeah. at, at that. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, the only reason I want to rush to the questions is because I want to be respectful of your time. It's kind of late where you are. And all right, so uh, the final third and final uh, complete the sentence is: I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank to do the boring housework. I mean, who who doesn't want to have that? I mean, I'm waiting for the day. And that's what we're actually seeing with these embodied AI system, humanoid robots um, that are very, like, have very fine motor skills uh, are coming up. And they can actually make you coffee now. You know, that's that's a great, great thing. But, yeah, that's what I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, I think that is, um, when you, once you take AI and you apply it to the physical world through robotics, I think that's really going to change a lot of things. We're seeing that with... Um, um, McDonald's. Um, obviously, everybody knows McDonald's. So I don't have to explain it. But you know, in in areas where the maybe the minimum wage is getting way higher, 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 they're just yeah. going to put robots in there. So that's why you can kind of like uh, make it so that you can get your food, and and uh, uh, that is going to be very disruptive economically. But that's a whole other podcast episode. Uh, and um. So share something different about yourself. I know you live in Dresden. I used to live in Frankfurt myself. So um, that's great. Uh, yeah. So share something a little different about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, my wife and I, we have five kids, which is uh, something special. Like not everyone has this these days, which is unfortunate, but I, I get it for, of course, that's not everyone's cup of tea. That's fine. Um, but anyhow, what you mentioned, Dresden, and I was born and raised in former East Germany. And what I'm still thankful about it is that my parents' generation went to the streets, peacefully protested, and that also, in the end, of course, there were also the big state players involved. But in the end, it led to the, you know, that the wall came down, that we had the reunification, that, you know, the East is integrated into the whole Germany again. 
And so I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing, working for a global company without that generation before me. And that's maybe something special. And that's also what I'm always thankful about. Cool, cool. Um, do you listen to audiobooks? Uh, sometimes, but not regularly. Okay. Do you have a book that you recommend for the audience? Um, there was one for the um, for the quantum computing, um, but like that's not a quantum podcast. But I, I recently had it, <laughs> a learning, learning quantum computing with a Q-sharp or something like this. If, oh, if, if okay. You learn it. Um, the, but yeah. Um, there was a quantum MVP who I think wrote that. I forget her name, but um, now she works at Microsoft, I think. Yeah. I can't yeah. think of her name. I'm blanking uh, on her name. Sarah. Sarah, Sarah something, yeah. Oh man, well, I have it. I have it actually down down here. I can grab that's it. Funny. No, no, that's fine. But, but but that that is a good book. I did I did read that one. Um and I'd love to get her on the podcast at some point because she's done some amazing stuff. And I think now she actually works for Microsoft. That's the last time. She, she works for Microsoft. Yes, yes. She's yeah, yeah, also yeah. in the in the community uh very much. Um yep, she's uh, very much in the community uh with the AI team, I think, at Microsoft. Very cool, very cool. Um, and so uh, Audible is a sponsor of the podcast. So if you go to thedatadrivenbook.com, you can get uh, a free audiobook on us. I don't think there, there's a lot of good books on quantum computing and kind of quantum physics that kind of walk you through and help you appreciate why quantum computers can do yep. what they can do. Um, but I, I imagine that that would be a very tough listen, right? <laughs> when you're dealing with code. Um, yep. um but uh, if you sign up with that link, you know, Andy and I get a kick, you know, a little bit of a, maybe I can get a cup of coffee for my birthday or whatever. Um, so where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Yeah. Um, so maybe uh, follow social media. I connect on social media. LinkedIn is a good place. Uh, I'm quite active there, but also X, uh, aka Twitter. I'm also quite active there, uh, but mainly, mainly LinkedIn and that kind of stuff. And uh, that's a good way to connect. And also, of course, you can also check out uh, our website at Reply.com because I'm also doing my own podcast. It's a little bit in pause mode right now, uh, mm -hmm. but it was about Meta Minutes. And I also did one for quantum computing called Qubytes. So uh, shameless plug here. You can also listen to some of those episodes, but that's the best way to, to learn about uh, myself and the Reply. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I, I've listened to a couple episodes of Qubytes. I thought they were really good. So um cool we'll have to have you on the show and maybe we could do like a joint collaboration or whatever um any parting thoughts well the parting thoughts is you know like if of course we're talking to data scientists so i don't need to give you the message you know leverage these tools because you're already building these tools so that's even right. better um just you know always always keep in mind to uh, uh be kind and be a nice person in the end and you know do things that that are good for humanity in the end that's always what it, what you got to think about. It sounds like a big picture, right? But right, in your right, everyday right. work, you can always think about it. What can what impact can you make? Absolutely. And I think that if we think about the ethical um, consequences for what we do, I think that's going to, if we all do a little bit of that, I think yeah. that will have a cumulative effect where we'll avoid or reduce the probability of really, really big problems later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a little bit each day, you know, that type of thing. So with that, I will uh, let Bailey finish the show. And thus, we conclude another fascinating journey through the digital landscape on the Data-Driven Podcast. A monumental thank you to our distinguished guest, Renee Schulter, 
for enlightening us with his expertise and insights. Renee, your prowess in navigating the complex world of technology has not only educated us but also inspired countless curious minds listening in. To our dear listeners, we hope today's episode has sparked a flame of curiosity and wonder within you. If you've enjoyed our digital escapade as much as we have, do us a favor, subscribe, rate, and pen down a review on your platform of choice. It's your support that keeps this ship sailing and our conversations vibrant. Until next time, keep those neurons firing, those questions coming, and continue to explore the ever-expanding digital horizon with us. Cheerio!